0: This is Santia Deck, and you're listening to MTNV Sports. Keep it locked. Welcome back, everybody, to an episode of the Jane Severs Podcast. This is episode number 109, dedicated to a man who, on July 1st, 1916, became the oldest individual in baseball to hit an inside-the-park home run, Mr. Honus Wagner. And as always, thank you for listening and downloading to the episode of the podcast. On today's episode, we are joined by Mr. Ian Eagle, veteran, Play-by-play broadcaster to talk about his broadcasting career. When you think of the name Iron Eagle, when you see Iron Eagle on your television screen, when you hear his voice, you know one thing: that broadcast is going to be top-notch from start to finish. Iron Eagle is a gentleman that has that is well known in sports, not just in basketball or football, even even in the tennis world. Iron Eagle is known, and he is a professional. Through and through, no matter what he is doing, he, he keeps his professionalism with him every step of the way. And in our conversation, I am sure you guys are going to enjoy it. One thing that he did do that I did not prompt, it kind of just happened. He did drop a few Bill Raftery impersonations as they were partners. Early on in Ian Eagle's broadcasting career, I believe it was the very first year that Ian Eagle was the TV voice of the then New Jersey Nets and those Bill Raftery impersonations. I have heard them before. I heard it when he was talking to me. Trust me, they will definitely make you laugh. Before we get to that conversation, one quick reminder. Today is Wednesday. On Thursday, we are still having a regularly scheduled episode of the week the second episode of the week mr ryan roberts of nfl draft bible will be joining me talking about the 2021 nfl draft class and specifically the quarterback group be looking out for that it's a great conversation you guys will not want to miss it let's go ahead and take a trip to the state of new jersey to enjoy my fun conversation with veteran play-by-play broadcaster mr Ian eagle Hey, Ian, welcome to the podcast. Jay, thank you.
1: Great to be with you.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. This time period in life has been different, not just for myself. I love sports for you. You call sports for a living. And just for everyone in not just America, but in the world, no one's life has been normal. No one's life has been the same. How has life been for you, your family, the family dynamic? I understand that your kids are at home or maybe they were at home. Uh, how have things been for you and the Eagle household?
1: Yeah, it's been very different, obviously, during the stretch of time when the quarantine started. That's usually the busiest time of year for me on a professional level, going from NBA to NCAA tournament, back to the NBA playoffs. I've been doing the French Open the last 15 years, so all of that went out the window. And just being home in general was not something I was accustomed to for as many consecutive nights as I've slept in my own bed. That is a 27 year record. I have to go back to 1993 to come up with that amount of time where I was actually in my own bed every single night. The positive part of it from a family standpoint my son, who's 23 years old, my daughter, who's 21, they were with us, with my wife and I. And that was completely unexpected. That was a gift. And fortunately, this was bonus time that we never anticipated, and we certainly made the most of it. Dinners together every single night, and still like each other, still (laughs) enjoy one another's company. Uh, Both my kids now are out in LA, although my daughter will be coming back soon, my son will stay. And hopefully, we are beginning to see some of the steps to getting back to quasi-normal. Yeah. But it's pretty clear that it's not going to be exactly like the way that we remember it, at least not for a long time.
0: Right. Right. How has, what are some of the stories that Noah provided you with them being his first year, um, the radio voice of the Clippers? I got to hear him, I believe it was Lakers and Clippers right before everything shut down that battle up there in LA. And I was in the car driving somewhere that Sunday cause I couldn't watch it. I had to go somewhere. I was like, wait, he's young. I know. I've heard his dad for so many years, but now his son he sounds polished. He sounds like he's been doing this like he's seasoned. But this is literally his first year as the radio voice of the team. How, what kind of stories did he provide while he was home?
1: Yeah, Jay, I, I think what it did was layered our relationship even more. We're very close, and the father-son dynamic has always been incredibly strong. But now we've got this other angle that we can relate to one another. Prior, he just heard my stories from doing games in certain arenas and meeting certain people and dealing with NBA personnel, players, coaches, staff. Now he's got his own, Uh, having done what wasn't quite a full season of the Clippers, but he got a real taste of what that job requires and the amount of preparation that's involved, the people skills that are necessary in order to get information and in order to do your job at a high level. And then, just the sheer aspect of broadcasting the NBA every day and the mindset that requires it. It's been pretty amazing for the two of us to compare notes and to have this added sense of understanding where the other one is coming from. And also now I think the advice that I've given through the years, which wasn't always broadcast related, it was more dad related. Right. But now the broadcast advice really hits home because he can fully comprehend what I'm talking about. Uh, his stories have been very similar to my stories. When I started out with Annette's in 1994, I did the radio for one season, then I got the TV job. But that experience of going through it for the first time, uh, that's something that only a finite number of people can truly understand. And uh, he's now part of that fraternity. It's been incredible, Jay.
0: Now, help me out. I believe when I listened to him, that Lakers and Clippers game, I believe he was doing the game by himself, no right. color commentator. Was that correct?
1: Yeah, correct. There's no analyst for Clippers radio. It's been that way for a long time. And even though he was a neophyte, they didn't change their philosophy. When they offered him the job, they told him, This is it. This is the job. You're going to do it solo. And there are still a few NBA radio setups that do that. Not a lot, but there are a few. And when he asked me about it, I said, look, it's going to make you better. It's going to force you to wear different hats and to view the game through a very unique prism. And when one day you do work with a partner on a full time basis, whenever that day might be, it's going to give you a greater appreciation of what their job is and how to do their job. Look, they're not asking Noah to analyze the game like a former 12 year NBA veteran, but what they want is lively conversation. They want engaging uh, broadcasting quality. And what this forces you to do in a solo setup is have your mind completely open to everything that's available, not just the play by play, but other aspects of the broadcast, whether it be statistics, whether it be a bit more analysis on the basketball side, whether it be what's happening off the court and describing what you see, because now you've got time to do that, as opposed to the back and forth banter that you would mm-hmm. normally have with your analyst.
0: Yeah. And I'm a, uh, I'm a Pacers fan, lifelong Pacers fan. Spent most, most of my time living in Indiana and Mark Boyle. He started cu- cu- calling radio f- for the Pacers like the year I was born 1988. And there've been times recently due to slick Leonard health issues. And then just other details of people's people's um, um, uh, operations where the schedules could not match up where he's done games solo. And so I heard your son and then I heard Mark Boyle and it reminded me like, I'm so used to Mark saying saying being very descriptive and then cutting off, but then Noah it seemed like not. Granted, it was later, like the later into the season, so he had some some games under his belt. But it seemed like even though it was his first year, he was well prepared for the moment. And even though there's no color commentator there, it seemed like the moment, and key, like, he, he just walked right into it and welcomed the challenge and kind of accepted it and, and conquered it.
1: Jay, he grew up fast, and he didn't have much of a choice. Their training camp, uh, the Clippers training camp took place in Hawaii. That's not a bad first assignment. not at all. Not not bad. So when you're told, hey, by the way, come out to L.A., uh, get yourself settled, and then the team is going to go to Hawaii and you're going to be with the team for two weeks, the first thought is, whoa, what's happening here? This is real? So it's real. But he's got to do two exhibition games. One of them, uh, I think the first was Clippers-Houston. So that's the first game he does by himself in a small arena in Hawaii. And then the second game is against a team from China. And you're doing that solo. So I think with just trying to get yourself ready and prepared and in the right complete mindset to do this job, you forget about the fact that a team from China is going to have some very challenging pronunciations. Uh, They're not going to have players that you've seen before. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's this whole other avalanche of information that's going to occupy your brain. But he didn't have time to overanalyze it. He didn't have time to stress about it. He just went in and and did it feet first, jumped in the pool. And I think at that point you realize there's not a whole lot that's going to intimidate me about doing this job. If I can do that and feel good about it, moving forward in an NBA setup and with the NBA environment, this is going to be a really fun ride, and, and that's what it's turned out to be for him.
0: That's good to hear. I know we're talking about Noah for like eight, nine minutes. I know it's not <laughs> really about him, um, but when did you know that you wanted your career to be in sports broadcasting?
1: Jay, I knew very young. I was eight years old when I had an uh, epiphany that this is what I wanted to do. And it was based on a number of factors. One, which I think is the main factor for most people that do this, a passion for sports. First and <laughs> foremost, that that's at the core of the impetus in dreaming about this. But then there were some other factors for me. My, my parents were entertainers. My dad was a comedian, a, a stand-up comedian, an actor, a musician. My mom was a singer and an actress. And that's the only life that I knew from... <laughs> as far back as I can remember. So them being on stage, performing, seeing them both on television, this was not foreign to me. This seemed very attainable. It seemed as if the dream that I had was something that I could actually go out and accomplish. And when I told each of my parents that this is what I wanted to do at such a young age, both of them said to me individually, I told them individually for whatever reason, both of them said to me, well, that's what you'll do. Like very matter of fact. They didn't overreact. Like, what are you talking about? You've got to do this, or you've got to do that, or we expect this. They both said, "Well, that's what you'll do." They knew nothing about it. They had no background in <laughs> sports broadcasting. My mom knew very little about sports. My father didn't even know a whole lot. He wasn't a huge sports fan. He became one because of my interest. And at eight years old, when your parents tell you that that's what you'll do, that's emboldening. You start to believe it. And that's basically what happened to me. So I walked around with this knowledge from eight years old on that, oh, I'm going to be a sportscaster. And I didn't shout it from the rooftops. I I didn't tell every person that I knew. If someone asked me, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? I tell them, well, I want to be a sports broadcaster. They say, oh, really? That's a job? This is the 1970s. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And uh, because of the way my parents handled it, it really did plant the seed inside me that this was something that, that I would be able to do for a career in my life. I didn't really do anything about it until I got to Syracuse in 1986, and I got serious about it, and I absolutely committed myself to it. But prior to that, it was really more of a theory, but it was a theory that I had very strong beliefs in that one day I would be able to do it.
0: And at Syracuse, I went back and looked at some things. Um, You did football, basketball, and lacrosse. Is that correct? At the uh, student-run station? Yes. What was that that experience like? Um, Basically having students um, with you and you're learning with them and you are kind of just going into everything and saying, well, these are sports. I love sports. I'm going to call them. Let's learn together. What was that whole experience like?
1: Well, Jay, Syracuse had uh, gotten to a point when I got there of building a very strong reputation and there were a number of high level sportscasters Mm -hmm. that have come out of the program. And obviously since it's probably grown even tenfold. Yeah. Back then it was Marty Glickman, Marv Albert, Dick Stockton, Len Berman, Andy Musser, Hank Greenwald. That was the string of successful broadcasters that had come out of Syracuse, Bob Costas, who was a little bit younger than the other guys. And when I got to Syracuse, Bob was really beginning to explode on the national scene with uh, both the NFL pregame show, baseball play by play, and the Olympic hosting role, which is oh, a yeah. level, and then the late night talk show uh, that certainly added to his resume. Then when I was there, uh, Sean McDonough broke through. Okay. So you had another announcer that was doing some some big time things. And when I was there, I met a young broadcaster who was just starting out of the business, Mike oh, I wow! at a high school football game in Syracuse. I went there to cover it for the student radio station. He was there covering it for the CBS affiliate in Syracuse WTVH. And we struck up a conversation. I approached him on the sideline. And we started talking. He said, hey, where are you from? I said, I'm from Queens, Forest Hills. He said, oh, I'm from Queens. I'm from Bayside, which was 15 minutes from where I grew up. And then a larger conversation took place. A friendship formed. He asked me if I was interested in interning at the TV station, which I said, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I so think I so. <laughs> interning for him for three years, my sophomore year through my junior year, became his producer, Uh, At one point for both television and radio, there was a radio show he was doing. He started up my senior year. I produced it. Eventually, I co-hosted it with him. So uh, that was a big turning point, uh, meeting someone who I knew, even at that time, was going to be a superstar in this business. But I just knew he had the professional medal that I was looking for, Mm -hmm. and that was really important. Uh, He became a mentor. He became, obviously, a friend. Uh, but more than anything else, he became a, uh, a model that, that I could use to try to pattern myself and things that I was figuring out at the time, I could bounce off of him and became a very integral sounding board for me. So looking back, that was just as important as the classes that I took. The radio station was a place where uh, a lot of young people that shared a similar aptitude got the chance to try things. It was trial and error, and nobody was a finished product at that point. Uh, You gave it your best shot. You listened back to your tapes. You improved. You took feedback from others, and by senior year, I felt very good about where I was, and I thought I was going to have a chance to be successful in this
0: business. That's good. There's so much I could talk about from from college to uh, 1990 the producer job at WFAN and then um, your bagels and baseballs uh, show, show that you had as well but everyone loves Raftery I am 31 years old and so I've been I, I've been listening to your um, interviews for a while and in, in preparation for this th- no reason to, to read about Ian Eagle there's a- interviews for Ian Eagle via podcast all over the place so I search I searched I Ian Eagle and I'm like okay cool here's what I'm going to listen to now I think last night at the gym I listened to uh, the one that you and Joel Goldette recently did. And so yep. I uh, I listened to that. But we I see Rackery as a fun, lovable, goofy guy. At the beginning of games, he has his way of introducing the game. The, the play-by-play man says something, and it really just – I see Nance drop out. And then Raftory says his little thing of the defense and the teams and the matchups. And then the whole game goes on. We capital, capitalize with the in game onions that he has coined so well. But you got to see him at a – part in your career that kind of helped you be a better professional at at a young age. Um, What was it like being paired up with with Bill Raftery? I think it was your first year as the voice of the Nets, if that's correct. I think it was a TV voice.
1: I am Eagle, Villanova, coming up. (laughs) Yeah, it's consistent every time. You know you're going to get it. The funny part, I did a Syracuse game with him a number of years ago, and I thought to myself, all right, I'm not going to say anything to Bill, but if – Miami wins the opening tip. How is he possibly going to get in his man-to-man saying because Syracuse plays his own? So I said nothing to him. It's Syracuse-Miami. It was a Super Bowl Sunday in Carmelo Anthony's only year with the program. And, of course, Miami wins the opening tip. I make the call. Miami wins the tip. We're underway in South Florida. And I lay out at that point. And Raf now chimes in. And I'm very curious. He says, I an Eagle! Syracuse! comes out in his own defense with man-to-man principles. He's still still got it in there, and he's just smiling. I'm looking at him. Yeah, the guy is a a genius. He's an absolute genius. Yeah, you nailed it. So I did one year of Nets Radio, 1994-95, and I was paired up with Mike O'Koran, former Net player, star at North Carolina, and in the wake of The Last Dance, Mike was Michael Jordan's host. When Jordan made his recruiting visit to UNC. So Michael Korn and Michael Jordan uh, have a long-time relationship. I think there's always a Tar Heel bond, but it was even more so because Mike was Michael's host uh, for that uh, recruiting weekend. So Michael Korn and I were the radio combo, and Spencer Ross, long-time, excellent New York sportscaster, and Bill Raftery were the TV combo. And that meant a lot of dinners on the road. That meant a lot of fun, a lot of laughs on the bus, on the plane, For me, it it was this joy ride because Bill uh, already at that point was a legend in my mind. I've been watching Nets games. I've been watching CBS games. In fact, my senior year of college, Big East tournament, we go to Madison Square Garden, WAER, and we have to do a pregame interview. you got to find somebody. Usually it's a media member. Maybe occasionally you would get an assistant coach. And who's on the court getting ready to do games for the day? But Bill Raftery, who's at ESPN at the time. And I said, all right, I'm going to approach him. Seems like a nice man on television. Yeah. Go up to him. I extend my hand. I said, hey, Bill, I'm Iron Eagle. I'm with WAER Radio in Syracuse. He's like, oh, yeah, Syracuse. You know, <laughs> I said, hey, would you mind doing a, an interview uh, for our pregame show? He said, well, when, when? When When will we do it? I said, we could do it right now. He's like, okay, go ahead. And that was it. He couldn't have been any nicer. So. Four years earlier from getting the Nets job, four years, literally, I'm asking him for an interview on the floor at Madison Square Garden, and now I'm out to dinner with him, and he's staying out till 3 in the morning, and I'm staying out till 3 in the morning. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? Like, my life has, has changed dramatically. So I get the TV job the next year. Uh, a new boss had come in at Sports Channel, uh, which had the rights to the Nets games, and I ended up getting the gig. It was a little bit of an upset, but I had done well at the radio job. I think the Nets were comfortable with the relationship and somebody, Pete Silverman was the executive at the time and Pete's still in the business has worked in television, radio. He gave me a shot. He believed in me and who am I paired with, but Bill Raftery and Jay, when I tell you it was the greatest thing to happen in my career, I would be underselling it. That's how much it meant Uh, because I had no TV experience whatsoever. I'm sitting next to a guy who is as transparent as any broadcaster, maybe in the history Mm -hmm. of the medium, that who he is off the air comes across on the air. All of the attributes that make him such a wonderful human being, you can feel over the course of a broadcast. And it doesn't matter if it's a big game, if it's a small game, if it's a national game, if it's a local game, if it's a regional game, he's the same. He's always consistently excited to be there. And that was a great lesson for me. Humor, which he brings a ton of, he's witty. That was a license for me to, to volley with him. And he wanted it and liked it. And I think that's part of the reason why we hit it off so well is he had a partner that now liked the idea that we could go places that maybe other people wouldn't go. And our relationship off the air was exhibited on the air, and it it did wonders for me, not just in learning the craft, but I think in people watching games, although the Nets were not getting huge ratings in those days, people watching the games realizing, oh, wait, this is how a broadcast can be. These guys can bust each other's chops and laugh and entertain each other. Even if the team is winning 30 games a year, they keep it moving, and they keep it exciting. You never know what they're going to say or how they're going to say it. So it just was an absolute gift. And then the fortunate part for me is that I've still been able to work with him for yeah. 25 years. It's not as if like what happens mostly in this business, you have a partner and then decisions are made and that's it. Yeah. You don't work with them ever again. Bill and I still get to work together on CBS and uh, it's just provided so much entertainment and positive memories for not just me for my family you know our families are very close it's not a typical broadcast relationship
0: is it true that the way that he shuts down a bar is different than any other person that you've been with or that we may have come in contact with I've heard so many stories and I'm like this can't be real Bill real he can't be that guy that when the bar's about to shut down he's uh Doing it in its own unique way. Uh, it
1: it's true. Yes, I will confirm. I will say though, Jay, it's not as often now as it used okay. to
0: be. He's okay. gotten
1: he's gotten a little more responsible <laughs> in his uh, later years of understanding. Hey, I gotta I gotta have the fastball tomorrow for this Michigan State Michigan game. Maybe we'll call it a night earlier than than the hours that he used to consider closing time, but. Uh, For many years on Nets broadcasts, really, the first three years I was with the Nets, I just didn't know I was allowed to leave. I thought I had to stay with him until the end. Finally, like in the middle of my third year, certainly going into the fourth, by midnight or 1 a.m., I'd say, hey, I'm done. He said, hey, Bird, what are you you doing? Don't (laughs) ruin a good party. And I, I would just go. I would make my exit, and then the next day I'd see him in the gym, working out, doing his little treadmill thing. And at first I thought he was going to be pissed off at me. And I realized it, he wasn't pissed. Maybe he didn't remember. I don't even know. But he said, oh, hey, Barry, how you doing? Like nothing happened. So I realized I was good. I, I needed to make some <laughs> decisions for my own career because I felt that uh, I, was, I was definitely burning it on, on both ends of the candle. And Bill is superhuman. His ability to bounce back is, is not normal. so I just realized I couldn't hang with him on that level
0: 19 and I'm going to move I'm trying to move fast I should be moving faster than this but 1998 I believe it was um I believe you did the Jets the Jets job in 97 and then in 98 I believe you got the call to do games with CBS um how was that transition from doing a local team matter if it's the Nets or the Jets you are still doing a a local team there versus doing um a national broadcast for a brand such as CBS.
1: Yeah, Jay, the way that all came about, and and this is why this business is so unpredictable, Uh, there's not a day where you wake up in the morning and say, this is the day that my career is going to change, or this is the day where there's gonna be this seismic shift in my job. But that basically happened. I I got a call from my agent in 1998. He said, uh, hey look, CBS is doing the winter Olympics and all of their announcers are going to be in Japan. All of them, all of their play-by-play announcers, but they still have a college basketball weekend before their Olympic coverage begins. Are you available February 7th for Arkansas and Vanderbilt in Fayetteville? And I looked at my schedule. It was the all-star weekend in the NBA. I said, yeah, I'm available. He said, okay, uh, they're, they're interested in using you. So there were three games that weekend. They used me. They used Joel Myers, who is now the voice of the New Orleans Pelicans. He's been a longtime broadcaster and uh, has done it at a high level for, for a number of years. And uh, the third broadcaster, trying to recall who it was, uh, it'll come to me in a moment. So I go down there. And I, it was Jim Durham, Chicago okay. Bulls, okay. then later the Dallas Mavericks. A lot of the calls that you heard on the early Jordan years from mm-hmm. the last dance were from Jim Durham, who to me was a top five all-time basketball play-by-play announcer, really gifted, gifted basketball play-by-play announcer. So I get the call. I go down to Arkansas. I am paired up with John Sunvold, a former – all-American at University of Missouri, played in the NBA with the Miami Heat, and I obviously never met him. The producer and director are not CBS guys because, again, all of their people are in Nagano, and we just do a game. And it was a nondescript game between Arkansas and Vanderbilt. Arkansas still was pretty stacked under okay. Nolan Richardson, And they won the game handily. You know, maybe they won by 14 points. And I flew home. I didn't really think much of it. I thought I did a solid job. I certainly didn't embarrass myself. And that was that. My agent called me two days later and said, how'd it go? I said, it went really well. He said, all right, yeah, I'll I'll check with CBS and see what they thought. He calls the executive producer who was just about to take over uh, with post-Olympic CBS sports coverage. And he said, yeah, no, we thought I did very well. And uh, we really liked the way he handled the traffic of the Mm -hmm. broadcaster. Okay. My agent didn't really know what that meant. He called me, told me that. He said, did you like help with the traffic after the (laughs) game? Like help the cars get out? Like, no, no, no. I think what he meant was uh, the way I handled myself going in and out of breaks. And he had, the executive producer had, uh, earphones back in New York. He could hear everything from the truck to me. And because these were non-CBS producers and directors, I wasn't always getting the best counts going to break. They, they were not used to how CBS did their broadcast. So every now and again, I'd get a count. All right, going to break in 10, 9, 2, 1. Like things would change. Or going to break in 3, 2, 9, 8, 7, 6. Strange things were happening. I know, weird. It happened, though. In fact, I couldn't I'm, count. Yeah, I think they could count. I think they were not hearing the count that they needed from Master uh-huh. Control, and it was a little bit of a mess. But every time I handled it flawlessly, I would—I had done so many broadcasts up until that point on the local level that none of this was daunting to me. It right. wasn't like a, a big jump in my mind. It's still a basketball court. It's still a headset. It's still a camera. I just didn't see it as this Big difference from what I had been doing. I always felt I'm working with Bill Raftery, a network announcer. I, I'm ready. I can do this. So a few days after that, I get a phone call from CBS asking if I was available for, for a Syracuse Georgetown game. And I was not, I had a net game. I didn't have any outs in my contract and I couldn't believe it, but I was going to have to turn them down, which I did. And then the person said, well, okay, I'll, I'll let you know when uh, we're going to have our seminar for the NCAA tournament thinking, NCAA tournament? I, I, I'm not doing that. I was doing that. <laughs> I was on the list. That My agent, I called my agent. He called CBS. I said, yeah, yeah, we want I to do it. So that changed everything. While I was doing the NCAA tournament in 1998, we were in Sacramento. I opened up the USA Today, and that was the, the paper of record because <laughs> uh, at the time, the national paper had a little a bit more of an impact. And it said in Rudy Martzky's television sports column that CBS had just gotten the rights to the NFL. And I thought to myself, I could envision a career at CBS. I'm doing football already for the Jets, WFAN radio, and lo and behold, that's what happened. CBS, uh, that, I'd say, summer, June, okay. I, got, I got signed on as a full-time announcer for CBS for NFL and for college
0: basketball. And in CBS, and I'm going to fast track now to 2010, because I believe that was a year that you and Dan felt start working, t- working together. Yep. Um, and unfortunately, um, as we're as things move around in your, in your business, I believe last year or the last year, you'll call games with him on a full-time basis, Charles Davis now. But what was that like with that long year, long Relationship with Dan calling games. How was it in the in the beginning? And you know each other, and then as the year started to progress, you guys are like, "Oh, I know what you know how to set him up. He knows how to turn it back to you." And you guys just kind of had like a good uh, best friend style, maybe relationship.
1: Yeah, no, Jay, you you definitely uh, hit on it. Ten years together. Uh, Dan and I got paired together after Dick Enberg left CBS to to go do the San Diego Padres. Uh, the late Dick Enberg and the great Dick Enberg. So CBS had to make a decision at that point who they were going to pair Dan with. Uh, I ended up getting the nod. And Dan and I had met once. He was doing a radio game in Nashville at the same day I was doing the TV game of a Titans game. And he ended up coming to dinner with us the night before. So the Saturday night, he joined us for dinner. It just was very random that it worked out that way. And we ended up sitting next to each other. And we were making one another laugh, and we were getting one another's sense of humor, but you know these things happen all the time. You sit next to a person at dinner, and then you may not, never see them again. Yeah. But we hit off. so that was a, you know, probably five years earlier. That might have been '05.
0: Okay.
1: So 2010 we ended up getting paired together. And Jay, where was the first game that we worked? Nashville. Same spot. same hotel. The hotel. So, you know, just weird that it worked out that way. The only place we had ever spent time together. That's our first assignment. And I am not exaggerating, Jay. I knew within the first three minutes of the broadcast that it was going to work. It took three minutes for me to realize that he and I were absolutely going to not just get along, but be successful doing this job. It just was so easy and we were on the same wavelength from the word go. And I would tell you to, to Google this uh, because it's just a, a fun little factoid from that game. The, the Titans sent a cheerleader onto the field with their mascot in a larger costume in that game. And all you have to do is type in Titans mascot uh, engulfs cheerleader. And this is the first game we've ever worked together. And it's just a cute moment that happened on the air that would show that he, he and I were in lockstep with one another. Now, I had had the benefit because something like that had happened that prior NBA season with a Toronto mm-hmm. Raptors cheerleader. Mm-hmm. So you can Google both of those things. And it's funny to me. I basically approached it in the same exact way. Uh, and I just did it as a joke the second <laughs> time around. The first time around was real. Uh, that yeah. was my real reaction in the moment as this thing happened, uh, and it's got millions of views. The Raptors one has hundreds of millions of views. And then this Titans one happens, and it's got a lot of views as well, but the comments are funny. Like, the announcer ripped off the other announcer. It's like, no, no, I'm the same announcer. It was this same announcer. But just even his reaction to it, and that's such a silly thing, but to me it does show the kind of partnership that's required. So we ended up working together for 10 years. 10 glorious years, like true friendship, uh, one of my best friends that, that I've ever had in my life. And Charles is going to be great. Charles is an outstanding broadcaster. He's a, just a wonderful person as well. We've been able to Zoom uh, throughout this quarantine once a week
0: just oh, to get to know each
1: other. Yeah. And, and it's really paid off. And it's probably 95% about life and 5% about football just to get an understanding of where the other one is coming from. Evan Washburn, our sideline reporter, has joined us. And recently, our producer, Mark Wolf, and our director, Bob Fishman, they've joined us as well. So it's been a really good team bonding. Uh, but the 10 years that I spent with Dan, they'll, they'll go down as uh, some of the best times I've ever had in my
0: career. One thing that I was that I did, and I did have to Google your name a little bit and try to figure out so some, maybe something off the wall that people don't know about Iron Eagle. Your voice was on NBA Jam, and I played that game um, gosh, I don't know when it was, but it was, there were a couple, I think it was NBA action, um, but NBA Jam was one that stuck out to me. Um, do you remember those those moments, Um, kind of getting ready for that kind of voiceover aspect? Yeah,
1: so there are a couple of different aspects to that. Uh, there was a show that the NBA produced called NBA Jam, and I was the voice on that show for a number of years, and it was geared towards a little bit of a younger audience, uh, they were trying to take aspects of NBA inside stuff, NBA action, which I currently voice, and combine it for this show called NBA Jam. Uh, so I did that for a number of years, and eventually I took over NBA action, which I've now been doing. Yeah. Man, I don't know, maybe 15 years I've been voicing the show, maybe even longer. It, it might be more like 17 years. the The game aspect, the video game aspect, I did a game for Sony for many years for PSP probably like seven or eight years before they just got crushed by NBA 2K. So that took them out of the marketplace. But I would fly to San Diego, and I'd spend a week voicing this game. And I had a number of different analysts over the years. I had Mark Jackson. I had Kenny Smith. I had Bill Walton. And I would never work with them. Mark Jackson and I actually worked together where we were in the studio at the same time. That was the only time that ever happened The other times it was separate sessions and I would do three, four days. And then Bill Walton would do three, four days and they would combine it. And I would be amazed at at what they would come up with. Then a couple of years ago, someone contacted me. I ended up voicing a new video game called NBA Playgrounds. And I did two versions of that. And that one was fun. That one was uh, definitely lighter in approach. It wasn't as hardcore play by play. They wanted more of a sarcastic tone, they wanted more interaction uh, with even the player themselves, where you would talk to the player, so to make them feel part of it. It was actually pretty cool, and it ended up being uh, fairly successful over over a two-year period. So I've done a a lot in that realm. I've I've done voiceovers for a bunch of commercials, for Pepsi, and Chunky Soup, and Converse, and Gatorade. Uh, So things pop up Along the way, I'm open to them. Uh, I tend to say yes a lot to offers that come my way. I, I've tried to pick and choose a little bit more in recent years. Uh, but it is a fun aspect of the job, and it's something different.
0: It's interesting. When you say yes, I immediately thought of basketball, Syracuse, Marv Alpert. That was the first thing that popped into my head.
1: Yes. Yeah, it's hard not to. That's That's an automatic. And a big reason why I went to Syracuse was – Because of Marv Albert, I grew up in New York, and Marv was the sportscasting king. He was doing the Knicks. He was doing the Rangers. He was doing the local news on WNBC. Then he would pop up on the weekends working pregame for baseball or a boxing match or the NFL. So anyone in a certain age group that wanted to be a sportscaster, odds are it was because of Marv Albert, especially if you grew up in New York. He was just involved in, in so many different things. And of course, that, that one phrase, yes, that that reverberated throughout
0: <laughs> the ears of sports fans in the Big Apple. Not yet, yeah, Big Apple. Um I I, I put him and his voice with 90s basketball. And so all throughout the last dance, and as they're showing clips of the Knicks and the Pacers and the Bulls and all these and all these games. This Marv Albert's voice, it just rings not just from my childhood, but even now. He is literally, to me and so many people, the voice of the NBA.
1: Yeah, and, and he earned it. He, uh, he had the right style for the right moment in time in NBA history, it just fit. He had a, a way of captioning a moment very succinctly and using his voice in a manner that drew you in his ability to build up the drama and then cap it with one word or very few words that would just tell the story. Uh, that, that's a skill. That's a talent. And I think a lot of play-by-play announcers have emulated that through the years. Certainly it affected my style. Uh, and look, I've changed things because as you evolve in this business, you can't just do uh, an impression of somebody. At some point, it's got to be you that comes through. But when I started If I went back and listened to my tapes at Syracuse, uh, there's no doubt I was doing an imitation of Marv Albert, of his rhythm and the cadence, because that's all I knew. I I just thought that was how you did it. It was later that I realized, okay, there are different ways to approach this, and you've got to put your own spin on things. It can't just be you doing a a facsimile of of somebody else. And that becomes important. You know, it's, it's a funny set of stages when you enter this business i think initially when you get into the business you just want to sound like everybody else you want to sound like you belong you don't want anyone to tune in on the radio or television and and be taken aback by whoa what what is this you don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable familiarity often is the thread that makes people feel at ease and then as you do that you realize well wait i I don't want to I don't want to sound like everybody else. I I want to sound like me. I want it to be unique, and I want it to feel when someone turns on the TV or radio that they automatically know. Oh, that's so and so. Not, huh? I think it's this, but it could be that person. And you know what? Now that I listen to it, it might even be that person. If they're guessing five different people, to me that's not a great sign. You you do want to stand out in your own way. So. When I look back on it, it probably happened in you know, ninety two, ninety three, as I started getting some real opportunities at WFAN radio that I was seeking my own sound and not just trying to, to be like everybody else.
0: Two more things quickly, um, and then we got some rapid fire to to wrap this thing up, but I believe it was 2017. You're still the voice of the Nets. I forget who your uh, color commentator was at that time or who kind of they were rotating in that position. But Michael Grady, a guy from Indianapolis, I listened to him on the radio. Um, He was the PA announcer, um, public address announcer for the Pacers and um, Pacers games. And I mean, that place was lively. I mean, little man, big voice. I mean, that place is lively. And then you guys took him. And luckily, you guys allowed him to still do the radio show, the morning show, when he could, with his travels, with the Nets and with the team. But what was his um, welcome to the team? Like, how did you – what was your first impression of him, of him? And then how have you seen him grow through this time?
1: So a few things. Uh, Michael is as cool a guy as, as you'll meet. So that, that's obvious from the day you meet him. The way he carries himself, the way he interacts with people, it was not going to be hard welcoming him to the crew because his vibe was chill.
0: Yes, and very chill.
1: Very chill in, in the best possible way. You mentioned the radio show. I got to experience the radio show firsthand because <laughs> the way that the room list would work out was completely random. So you didn't know who was staying next to you in a road city. And a couple of times, you know, Michael's got he's got great pipes. Yes. And a couple of times early fairly early in the morning, especially when we were on the west Coast, I would hear something. I thought, what's going on in the room next to me? And I started to realize that I drew the room next to Grady and he's doing his radio show <laughs> <laughs> at eight in the morning in Sacramento and uh, you know that became a, a real source of, of fun between uh, all of us on the crew. Michael's versatility, uh, Michael's ability to relate, to anybody and everybody Uh, his yearning for knowledge he wanted to learn you know Michael has been doing pre and post and sideline but now I started to venture into some play-by-play and uh, Michael and I have had some some deeper conversations about the approach to play-by-play and how to make it your own and how to have command over a broadcast because that's really the biggest key of all is as the play-by-play announcer you've You've got to be in control of the tempo and where the broadcast is going. The producer certainly sets a tone for a broadcast, but the play-by-play announcer then takes it and brings it to life for the the viewers to see and hear. And you know, I just I'm just so impressed with him as a person. He's a renaissance man. It's not all about sports for him. Mm -hmm. This love of of photography and music. uh, his fiance and and her son and to watch him in that role. It's, it's been amazing. It feels like I've known him now for, for 20 years and it's, it's been almost four. So that says a lot about the kind of person he is. And look, we have a fantastic crew. It's just a very warm group. It's a close knit group. We've had people come and go, but the, the whole approach has never changed and that's our producer frank de grace who's been doing this for a long time to me best producer in the nba he just he just gets it he he understands how to how to make everybody do their best when it matters most and michael has been a star flat out
0: yeah he has been and it was this past year actually i was um on Twitter searching and I saw that he had tweeted out there was a picture of him working sidelines of a of a Colts game where his first sideline game was in the hometown where he grew up and did high school and his career started and then I happened to be at a Dayton basketball game uh Dayton Flyers in Dayton Ohio and it was Michael Grady Avery Johnson I'm like and I looked out at the court I'm like hold on that's Grady and then I go to Twitter and he's taking pictures and tweeting out there and and you talk about I mean his growth um when he was doing the radio show, I was selfishly thinking and hoping he didn't leave Indianapolis. That somehow Indianapolis would find a job for him to stay there forever because he's just that good. But seeing his versatility, going to Brooklyn, and then um, just, just the way that he's progressed and been just kind of accepted any kind of challenges. Just said, if you want me to do that, yeah, I'll do it. And I, I accepted it. And, and you said it so well. He's... Uh, He's so easy to get along with, and that comes through when he's, no matter if it's in Brooklyn Nets broadcast, CBS broadcast, no matter what broadcast it is, his personality and the person that he is comes out in everything that he does.
1: He's crushing it. It's that simple, Jay. And trust me, people are going to see him on a larger stage as well. This is not the ceiling, and this would be quite a ceiling. If it was just this, you'd say, wow, pretty amazing. They'll be there'll be bigger things to come for Michael.
0: I know um, a lot of people listening to this will think this was planned, but no, Ian Eagle and I did not plan to record this the day after the NBA schedule came out um, or was released. But how are you and other broadcasters and other members of the media preparing for the return of the NBA and going down? are, Are you going to be at the Orlando bubble? Are you recording from a studio? Do you know? Kind of how are you preparing for this return to the association?
1: Still up in the air. Uh, It's not cut and dry. The local stations will do it from a remote location. Uh, That part is a fact. The networks are trying to determine how they're going to handle it, if they're sending announcers down there, if they're going to do it remotely. That has not been decided as of yet. So for me, there could be a combination. Uh, There might be local in New York, And then there might be some Turner, if I can work it into the schedule, and that could possibly be within the bubble. So we're still in that in-between stage of things being sorted out, and uh, clearly uh, there is still a lot of questions that, that have to be answered, but we appear to be headed towards this for the NBA, and the league has been very steadfast in their belief that they can make this work.
0: Is your preparation for this return to the league and to, for the season different than, say, the beginning of the season or, like, say, the middle of the season? Or is it is it different or is it all the same?
1: No, it's going to be different. There's no doubt. The tone is probably going to be different. The fact that there are no fans there. So even from a play-by-play announcer's perspective, the ambiance of a game often dictates the energy level of your call. And if you don't have the balance – of a crowd, that's going to change the way that you call the game. So there might be a case where the networks are using some artificial sound. That's very possible. And initially when that was brought up, my first instinct was, no, you can't do that. You can't possibly do that. That's wrong. That's misleading. But having heard some other broadcasts of, you know, soccer league, that might be a reality. It may have to be part of the equation. So uh, we'll see. We're going to handle it. Uh, you, you have to be a professional. You have to figure out, given your circumstances, how to make it work. And for me, that, that's going to be my approach. Um, my whole philosophy is entertaining and informative. That can't change. What does change is the circumstances you're working under and the fact that it isn't in large arenas with people hanging over rows of seats to feel the action. So you have to even be more of the conduit of what's happening for the viewer at home in many ways, because it's going to be hard to gauge. You know, The way that, that I've looked at things as a play-by-play announcer, I don't want a big-time highlight to happen without me being on top of it. Right. But it's going to be tougher. It's going to be more challenging.
0: Let's wrap this thing up. This has been fun. A lot of fun. I thank you for uh, taking time to do this with me. Um, Just nine rapid fire questions really quickly. Some are questions, some are thoughts, just kind of a light way to uh, end this conversation. Then At the end, it just kind of have like a final word. If you have any last comments you want to give, you can give those at that time as well. Um, Thought or question, well, more of a thought, number one, what would you say is the highlight of your job?
1: highlight of my job is uh, the people more than anything else. Uh, and I know most would say, oh, you get to go to cool cities and work in arenas and stadiums and meet all these athletes. To me, it's been the relationships that I've formed across all of my, my different assignments, you know, whether it's CBS, whether it's Yes Network, whether it's uh, the NBA, whether it's Tennis Channel, whether it's Westwood One, Turner, I just have met and worked with so many wonderful people, and you collect people through your life. And now I look back after doing this professionally for 30 years, and I'm just amazed at at all the different personalities that that I've met. And not necessarily famous personalities, but people that are really good at their jobs and just have a, a great heart and kindness to them
0: a person you'd love to call a game with and you've called games with a lot of people. So someone that's out there that you say, I would love to call a game with that person.
1: Yeah. For many years it was Steve Kerr. And then I was fortunate that I got to do it at Turner for a couple of games and I was just blown away. I I thought he combined all of the aspects that you look for in broadcasting insightful, uh, clever sense of humor, quick, prepared, all of it. I just, I was amazed, really blown away. Uh, you know, look, Tony Romo, I think I would have a blast okay. with There's no doubt. I think we would have a lot of fun, and hey, maybe one day we get to do a game together. But he's probably next on that list right now.
0: If you could, um, reenact one of your favorite calls.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. Calls develop. You right. don't know sometimes from when, from where, how. Uh, a few of my basketball calls, I do know the genesis. And the one that, that I remember from college was a, a Syracuse-Pitt game. And Pitt had a, a really strong team under Paul Evans. And I don't just mean strong that uh, they could go far in the tournament. I mean physically strong. And there was uh, a player on their team by the name of Brian Shorter. And for whatever reason, he dunked on Syracuse – And I'm not sure to this day why the words came out of my mouth this way. But I said, Brian Shorter with a man's jam. (laughs) And I think looking back on it, it looked like on that play, he was a man among boys. So man, jam, there's a little rhyme, wordplay. I'd never said that before in my life. I'd never said it in a schoolyard. I'd never heard it before. But I liked it. So when I got the (laughs) NBA job years later, I would work it in occasionally. And, you know, certainly college basketball, I've used it. Uh, So that's one that just popped up, just popped into my head. And and it's lived all these years later.
0: What would you say is your favorite vacation spot?
1: Well, our honeymoon, my wife and I went to Italy and just loved it. We have not been back. In fact, we were supposed to go back this year. Obviously, uh, the pandemic changed all of that. Uh, I've been to some great places. Uh, my wife and I try to make a conscious effort every year to take our kids as they were younger and growing up to somewhere new. So when they hit a certain age, they could say, wow, well, I've been to Aruba. I've been to the Bahamas. I've been to London. I've been to Paris. I've been to Mexico. I've been to Hawaii. So really, it's benefited them <laughs> more than <laughs> that they got they got the, the best end of the deal, uh, but I, I couldn't give you an, any one particular place. I will say Aruba of late. My wife and I have gone back numerous times, so there's clearly something there that draws us in uh, mm-hmm. because it is a very happy place, uh, so that, that's probably been number one in, in more recent years.
0: Let's stay on the same topic of vacation. What's a place you would want to go, but you've never been?
1: i uh, never been to Croatia. Would like to to go there one day. I Just I've heard incredible things about it, and hopefully, when the smoke clears one day, that's going to be a, a realistic vacation
0: spot. So, Ian Eagle, we know of you as either the Nets' voice or doing games for Turner or calling college basketball or NFL for uh, for uh, CBS. And there's also the French Open, which you mentioned. I have I've seen where you've done uh, Army Navy in college. You've done boxing, track and field for NCAA. But what sports? would you love to call that you haven't?
1: <laughs> I don't know if there is one anymore. I've done volleyball as well and you know, tennis, golf, track and field, boxing. The only assignment I ever turned down that I can recall of a sport that, that, I, that I just was not that interested in was horse racing. That was about it. Okay. And it was just because it, it really didn't float my boat. I did have some opportunities in baseball. And I was unable to do those based really more on a personal reason. And it was the only time my wife, who has been so understanding, we've known each other since college, dated in college. It was the only time she ever said like, seriously, really? You know, the Mets had made an offer sports channel many, many years ago to do like a 25 game package. And it was a long time ago. My kids were very young. And the only time I had off was this very brief period of two weeks in the summer. And basically, I would have been doing games during those two weeks. And my wife, and smartly so, said, you realize that that's going to affect our family if you do this. And she was right. So, So I did turn that down. I had some opportunities with the Yankees as well through the years, but I just never felt right pulling the trigger based on the balance of work life, family life. And I've been comfortable with with the decisions I've made and and the sports that I ended up calling.
0: If you could be the director of a thirty for thirty and do whatever documentary on whatever athlete team coach you you wanted to do, who would you pick to do a thirty for thirty on?
1: Yeah, that's a good one uh, of of ones that haven't been done because right, it feels right. like we're now at a at a place where everybody's been covered through the years. You know, Carl Lewis. I don't know if hmm. Carl Lewis has been fully covered to that level. Interesting guy, highly accomplished. He might be one that that would fit the bill. That uh, maybe we haven't seen the full story and the full spectrum of his impact and personality-wise. Like what what made him tick. That that might be one that uh, I don't think I've seen.
0: So the last two, they're both basketball oriented. Um, one's Michael Jordan, one's Kobe Bryant. With the Michael Jordan one, with you calling his games, and I don't, I don't, know, I don't know if you did any national broadcast with Michael, I'm sure you called some of the, the, the Nets games when, when the Bulls played the, the New, Jer- New Jersey Nets at that time. Um, but what's one memory you have from Michael Jordan calling his games and being up close and personal with him at that time?
1: Yeah, I ended up calling a, a bunch of Jordan games because I was doing the world feed for the NBA. Ah,
0: home. that's right. So
1: even on the last dance, the shot over Brian Russell, I called that game in Utah and have this indelible memory of being the way that they situated the the world feed broadcasters or if you were a broadcaster from Spain or Italy or Mexico or France, we were in the stands, like literally in the stands with fans around us. And the fluctuation of emotions that Jazz fans had from believing they were going to win game six and then potentially win the series because Scotty Pippen probably would not have been available for game seven. So the highs of that to just moments later realizing that they were not going to win game six and in fact uh, they were going to lose to Michael Jordan again and he was going to do it in dramatic fashion. Uh, that, was, that was pretty wild to just be in the middle of that. It just was an electricity every time he played in a game that you broadcast. You could feel it. It was tangible in the arena. And I would say the only three players that I felt that for during my 26 years calling the NBA would be Jordan, Kobe, and LeBron, where it's just a different level. And that's not to say that there isn't this anticipation when Giannis Attentacompo or James Harden or Kevin Durant, there is. But there was something that was next level with those three. And, you know, funny with my son, Noah, I mentioned Michael Korn earlier. Because of his relationship with Michael Jordan, he said to me, hey, your son is, was just born, and he was, 1996. He said, do you want Michael to, to sign a, a baby pair of Air Jordans for him? I, I said, yeah. Are you kidding me? He said, <laughs> just go buy a baby pair of Air Jordans. Next time the Nets play the Bulls, I'll take you back there before the game, and uh, he'll do it. And lo and behold, that's what I did. Above that's amazing. Uh, Michael Korn brought me to the back. There was Michael. Remember all those scenes where he had his security around him mm-hmm. and his guys surrounding him as he sat on a training table. That's exactly where I was. They took me to the back through the catacombs, and there he was, not in uniform, you know, <laughs> just kind of sitting there. He'd like to to talk smack with Mike or Korn. He asked, "You know, well, what's going on? Oh, who's this for? Oh, my son. Oh, what's his name?" okay, cool, cool. Signed him up, shook my hand, and, and away I went. So a pretty cool moment.
0: What would you say, and this is the last one, and everybody, I think, in their own words would put this, the answer to the thought to what I'm about to say in their own special way, but what would you say made Kobe Bryant so special?
1: His presence was off the charts. He He had a real sense of the moment, and he really had a sense of self and how it affected others. Look, Kobe was ultra confident to the point of being cocky, but it worked for him, and he saw how his presence could affect those around him, either motivating his teammates, sometimes maybe demeaning his teammates, because that was the mechanism he was going to use, intimidating his opponents because he could do that as well. Mm -hmm. And then I think what we learned in the last few years of his life was there was a humanity there and his dedication to his daughters and his real interest in moving the women's game to a different level and understanding the role he could play in that. Uh, I'm, I'm just glad we got to see that side of him. Mm-hmm. To me, that completed the picture. He wasn't perfect. Nobody's a perfect person, and uh, there certainly were some some things in his background that you could question to this day. But I think we saw an evolution in him and it it at least gave us the right view of the complete, person and not just the steely competitor and determined player we saw more right And I'm, I'm just glad that, that that's at least the the lasting image that we'll have
0: I this has been fun a lot of fun um do you have any last lasting comments a final word you'd like to say um, I know you're getting ready for the NBA out of basketball is right on your mind do you have any last comments you don't want to leave the listeners here on the podcast
1: Yeah, more than anything else, Jay, and I felt this way before everything that was going on in our country, and I will feel this way for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And it's just more of a philosophical thought, and that's just be aware of how you treat people and how your words have an effect on others and the good that you can put into the world. And the domino effect that that can bring. And I think maybe now more than ever, just the understanding that kindness goes such a long way and listening and being aware of other people. We're just at, at such a pivotal time in in the world. And, you know, I think a lot of people would say, well, what can I do? I, I can't, I can't change the world. Well, yeah, you can, you can, if, if you do things the right way and if you teach your children the right way and you continue to stress positivity and understanding and acceptance, that to me is a very simple way. It, it doesn't take a whole lot to be nice, it just doesn't. To me, it takes more effort to be an asshole. Yeah. So don't be an asshole. That, that would be the, the lasting message, however.
0: I mean. <laughs> That's a great way to end it, Ian Eagle. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. I know you're getting ready to go either stay and stay home or go to Orlando. You're getting prepared for this resuming of the NBA season. I just, I'm just glad you took time out of your schedule, busy schedule, <laughs> to come here on the JCW podcast. Thank you so much, Jay.
1: My, my pleasure. Great talking to you. Excellent job. Uh, fun conversation, and uh, we'll do it again down the road.
0: When I started the podcast, I put together a list. And on this list, there are names. There are people that I would love to interview. May it be a play-by-play man such as Iron Eagle who is on that list and he is always at the top of his game during every broadcast. Or may it be someone that called a game with Iron Eagle, a man by the name of of Clark Kellogg who has a broadcasting career as well as a playing career. So that's that's a lot to dive into that man. I would love to have a sit-down talk with Mr. Clark Kellogg. Or it may be people that work in studio, in the studio, a Marcus Spears or an Emmanuel Lachow. People that are that have a playing career, that have a broadcasting career, that are close to my age and we can just sit down, have a lot of fun talking about sports. Oh, you know what else is special about that list? That list keeps getting longer and here on the podcast we are just tapping into said list episode 100 Mr. Greg Doyle came on and that was a lot of fun he will definitely be back on in the future also Mr. Iron Eagle is on that list of play-by-play man I'm a person that loves play-by-play broadcasters at from time to time while at the gym I will listen to interviews of play-by-play broadcasters Iron Eagle being one of them but that list keeps getting longer and you don't know sooner than you think there may be somebody else on that list whose voice will be featured here on the j stevens podcast thank you for listening to the episode of the j stevens podcast as always you can follow me on twitter at j stevens 07 if you're not on twitter and you would love to connect with the podcast see your emails to j at gmail.com remember to always subscribe rate and review it's a great way for people that are, that are searching for new podcasts to listen to, to come across this one. Then remember to always get the word out about the podcast get yeah, word of mouth. The things that we enjoy in life, if we are more willing, and somewhat wire to tell other people about. So no matter if this was your first episode or if you have been listening since episode one, be sure that people know about the podcast. This has been episode 109 of the With Podcast. I'll see you next time.